Excellent. Good to see you. So good to be here. Thank you so much for your warm welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you for making the, the, the time available in your, your schedules to, to get away for a weekend with the church. Um, good decision. Um, very, very wise move uh, to be uh, brought aside uh, uh, from the busyness of life with the people of God um, is, is, is uh, excellent and it creates all kinds of opportunities um, all kinds of good things can come of it. Uh, Jesus modelled this quite deliberately it seems in, in the way he, he led his disciples you think about the way he trained them to be disciples, to be followers, and to be uh, leaders, people who would make a difference in the world, just like each one of you is called to. to uh, he did this by often taking them away, just taking them away from, from their busyness, taking them away from the crowds, from the cities, and uh, just being with them. Uh, we don't quite know everything they got up to. We know that he taught them a lot. Um, I imagine they prayed together a lot. But it seems as well that they would have just spent time getting to know each other and uh, enjoying fellowship, uh, as Matt was describing it last night, knocking the edges off each other, helping each other change by God's grace. Um, there's something about coming aside that is very valuable in the community of God. And, uh, and we, we get a lot achieved in the city uh, through our regular contact, regular ministry around the word, worship in the spirit. We get, we get a lot achieved, but we get something special achieved by going away. Um, so I just want to urge you to, to keep this, this as a, a priority in years to come. Make sure you use these opportunities when Matt brings them to you as a church to, to, to respond and get away. And it's especially uh, good to be going through these words, this one verse uh, from the Acts of the Apostles. It really is a plumb line verse if you're wanting to understand the DNA of a healthy church. What, what, what are the things that make a church healthy? Um, and we're talking about Perhaps, perhaps the top four. Um, certainly, you know, they, they are very high priorities. And, uh, and Matt helped us so well last night by starting us off with devotion to fellowship, to partnership, to, to being together. I want to talk to you today about two of the others, uh, the first of them being devotion to the Apostles' doctrine, and then this afternoon, devotion to prayer and then tomorrow we'll talk or it won't be me but uh, we'll talk about devotion to taking bread and wine together to the Lord's Supper okay so that's the plan I'm going to read to you the passage again and um, and then we'll pray I'm going to read to you actually from verse 42 up to the end of the chapter because it kind of it I think it helps us to see the outcome so if you look at verse 42 as the kind of um, the, the fountainhead and as the, the, the kind of the, the foundational things that need to be in place in a church, from verse 43 onwards, you get to see the result of these things in a church. A church that is devoted to these four things will 
ought to, in some way, begin to look like the church that we see described in verses 43 and 47. The one should lead to the other. So let's just read it all. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's just pray together. Father, thank you for uh, your presence with us now by the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, especially for the gift of your Son. We thank you for everything he means to us. We thank you for the grace you've shown us. Uh, Lord, we thank you. Lord, we are not what we were, but we've been brought into union with your Son. We thank you for life, uh, Lord, given us through his, his death and resurrection. We thank you for new identity. And Lord, freedom from shame, freedom from guilt, freedom from sin, freedom from the past, freedom from fear, from anxieties, uh, from futility, from fruitlessness, from pointlessness. We thank you, Lord, for everything we have in Christ. And we, we pray, Lord, would you send your spirit now to each one, Lord, that we would take these things that you teach us through Scripture and, Lord, live in the good of them. I pray each one of us now, you'd help us to know how to apply these things to our lives and how to live increasingly as that devoted community, devoted to these things, so that the kind of church we see established will be uh, the one that Amsterdam needs to see and which brings glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I want to talk to you about being devoted to the apostles' teaching. Uh, this might seem less dynamic than some of the things to which we can be devoted. Being devoted to teaching, to doctrine, to theology, to understanding ideas and concepts from the Bible. This might seem to be um, kind of academic, not particularly practical, not particularly significant in seeing anything happen. Uh, that's, that at least nothing exciting happened, nothing transforming or dramatic. But surely, surely that's, that's clearly not true. You don't actually need to be a Christian to see that isn't true. You just need to observe how the world does change. The world, in reality, gets powerfully changed by movements that are plugged into not just experience, not just into leaders with a lot of charisma, but movements that are plugged into a way of thinking, ideas. Ideas clearly change history. 
And, and you only have to scratch a little bit back into to fairly recent history to see this happen. But you'll see it again and again and again and again. The, 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 the groups of people, the communities of people, and the, the multiplying communities, and the, the movements of people that bring lasting change to, to communities and neighbourhoods and cities and nations and societies and cultures have normally found inspiration and kind of fuel from things they've learned together. They've caught some ideas together that have gripped them, totally gripped them. They've been inspired. I see something new. A whole way of seeing the world has opened up to me and I just want to live for it now. I'm gripped by it. It's caught my imagination. I am inspired by it and I want to see it happen. And it will often come through patient time, studying, thinking, listening to somebody teach, reading some of their material, and, and then starting to discuss it and work at it and think about how it can be applied. I'm not talking about just good things. I'm talking about sometimes quite evil things. So this is, this is, new, this is good and bad, but it, it's, it's patently obvious. It happens again and again and again and again. So, so leaders that have really changed the world have generally done it through somehow codifying their ideas and in, in ways that can be passed on. So things like the, the, the Leninist revolution in, in, in Russia just over 100 years ago. Things even like the, the, the Reformation in, in Europe 500 years ago. Things like even more recent things. Things like in, in the UK in the 70s and 80s, the, the, the way that... Uh, uh, politics and economics changed in a really radical revolutionary way, it was partly because um, leaders and influencers got hold of some fresh ideas that they got really excited about and began to demand that changes happened in the way that trade was done, in the way that the workforce and trade unions were kind of regulated. They said, no, we will have to change everything. And they took a lot of you know, risks and they, they, they changed things quite dramatically because they got sold out to some ideas. More recently, people like Barack Obama, when he became president, it was on the back of writing quite a, a thoughtful book that explained a way of understanding the world and priorities. And, and I guess because we're living in an age when you know, the, the, the president now is more famous for writing tweets than anything else, we can probably kind of imagine that you know, great influence and power can happen without a lot of substance behind it. But truly, the, the, the movements that really shape the world, there are big ideas. There are, there's big teaching behind it. And if that's true generally, then it's certainly true of the church. It's true of the way in which the church has flourished and succeeded in generations past. Devotion to teaching, devotion to doctrine is definitely a hallmark of a healthy church. Where there is a lack of devotion to teaching. I'm not just saying where there's a lack of good teaching, because you can actually have good teaching and the church still not be devoted to it. You can have churches where there are a lot of people who assume, oh, this is a healthy church because we have a good teacher. Because there's someone at the front who's quite good at teaching and preaching and explaining. And there's perhaps a small little kind of niche group within the church who are quite into the teaching. You know, there's that little percentage of the church, the nerds in the church, who kind of, you know, we appreciate good teaching, but generally it's not got into the bloodstream of the church. It's just gone into a tiny little 
little clique. And that's not much healthier. A healthy church is where right across the whole stretch of community life, there's an atmosphere of devotion to the teaching of the Bible. In some way, it's expressed wherever you go. Wherever you go in the church, you feel like, yeah, these people, they are serious about understanding the teaching of God's word. And, and, uh, and so for us to develop that kind of healthy atmosphere here in Amsterdam, we, we need to think, what would that look like? How would we create a church community where there's devotion to teaching? And I want to look at that for, for starters by looking at the barriers to it, the, the reasons why it's, it's difficult. It's worth doing that. It's worth the honesty of considering our an inclination, actually, to not be devoted to teaching. Let's just analyze ourselves for a moment and then uh, make some decisions off the back of that in terms of how we can adjust, perhaps. First of all, there are just a few quick problems that we would have with, with being devoted to apostle teaching. First of all, it can, it can sound anti-freedom. It doesn't sound necessarily like freedom to be devoted to teaching. We, this church is called Liberty, conscious of the fact that Amsterdam is famous for its love for liberty, or at least its, its, its love for what it understands liberty to be. And uh, ever since the kind of cities like Amsterdam came on the world stage hundreds of, a few hundred years back with their passion for liberty or liberalism and freedom, people have generally in the West kind of uh, commended themselves with the idea, we, we know what real freedom is. We know what real liberty is. And, and one thing we know liberty isn't is indoctrination. When you are being told what to believe, that is not liberty. Liberty is when no one can tell you what to believe. No one is allowed to indoctrinate you. So the thing we're most frightened of, perhaps, in cities like mine, in Brighton and Amsterdam and such places, is indoctrination. I want us to just examine it, though. What, what, where does that suspicion stand if we examine it? Because it is suspicion. There's a general suspicion towards indoctrination. We're frightened of any kind of truth claim. When somebody says, here is the truth, the, the, even the, the, kind of the, the, the kind of iconic image of somebody with a book standing before a community like this and saying, here's the truth from God to you poor people. Uh, that, that kind of image is it's, it's, it's kind of water to a cat in our kind of cities because yeah, we just don't like that. That's indoctrination. And then there's, there's certainly a lot to be wary of. Because there is an instinct in people to grasp power, to influence people inappropriately, to bully people. There is such a thing as, as, as using truth to, to, to grab power. There is such a thing as power plays. What we've done, though, in our contemporary age is we've assumed that every truth claim is a power play. Every time somebody says, here is the truth, it is a power play. It is to be... It is to be called down. We're against anyone with a truth claim. That, that kind of assumption prevails 
in our culture, it's in the water, it's in the bloodstream, it's, it's mainstream. You may, you may think I'm exaggerating, I tell you I'm not. In subtle ways, that's the way we think. And, and like I say, there may be some reasons why that's come about. There may be some legitimate reasons, because people have lorded it over people. The scripture talks about that itself. People who, leaders who lord it over others, who use authority, who intimidate people. And say, well, you, you can't question me. I'm, I'm beyond question. I'm the one with authority. I am the apostolic person. I'm infallible. That's how you get cults. And, and a cult leader, by definition, is someone who has illegitimate authority over people. They're unquestionable. I think of an example in the UK from a generation back, a leader of a group which went into serious... Uh, inappropriate kind of levels of authority or authoritarianism where the leader was actually caught having an affair, caught in bed with somebody. And when, when he was caught, his, his response immediately was, I did this to test you, to test your loyalty to me. So you, you mustn't blow the whistle on me because that will show you're not loyal to your leader. And you might think that is just ridiculous. That is ludicrous. Honestly, people... People went with him on it. Some broke away and, and did leave, but they left under this horrible shadow of having split this perfect sacred community. It was horrible, it was wicked. And so the people were staying in a, a group of churches that were led by a really a, a guy that had turned to, to, to a wicked level of authoritarianism for fear. So I'm, I'm giving you that example to, to say this, that is a valid concern. And being indoctrinated by people who are on a power trip is a genuine danger. So we, we, can't, we can't pretend that's not relevant. The Bible refers to that sort of thing frequently. But at the same time, the, the Bible doesn't say that therefore every time someone is teaching doctrine, they are bullishly indoctrinating. That they are using authority wrongly. It doesn't, say, it doesn't go that far. It doesn't swing to the other. The pendulum doesn't swing to the other side in the Bible. The Bible is able to teach both the dangers and the good, the good things, if you like. And, and the Bible would surely call, invite us to suspect our suspicions, to question our questions, to doubt our doubts. Because actually, a culture where we simply are suspicious of everything, every single truth claim, every time someone teaches doctrine and say, well, you're against freedom of expression, freedom of belief. You're, you're not allowing me to have freedom because you're, in, you're telling me what to believe. If, if, if we say that that is the, the, the unquestioning belief that everyone ought to have, then and actually we're contradicting ourselves. It doesn't make sense to suspect. To suspect everything has to, in the end, eat itself. It self-consumes. It doesn't work. Because what, otherwise what you end up with is a situation where... where you can, you can do no pushing of any agenda. You are not allowed to convert anyone to your point of view. You're not allowed to, to, to teach other people. It's, it's offensive for you to teach that you have truth. How dare you do that? Do not tell us that you have the truth. Isn't the person who's making that command doing the very thing that he or she is saying you shouldn't do? It doesn't work. You're, you're contradicting yourself if you say that. In the end, it doesn't stand up 
to its own test. If we insist that people can never be indoctrinated, we are doing the indoctrinating. And, and it seems to me it's a pretty gross kind of indoctrinating because it tries to hide itself as well. It tries to be invisible. It's like carbon monoxide. It's, you don't know it's happening until it's too late. You've been conned by someone saying, oh, I'm neutral. I don't, I don't believe anything. I don't believe anything. I don't believe anything. I, I'm completely neutral. I, and again, in our culture, in our context, in our cities, the prevailing mainstream is this idea of perfect neutrality. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing as neutrality in the end. People will give their heart to something. People will be indoctrinated by something, even the doctrine that says there is no doctrine. That will be a doctrine. And people are indoctrinated by it blindly, trustingly, foolishly in the end. So we need to be a little more suspicious of the, of the suspicious, if you like, and, and come back to saying, wait a minute, what if there is a God who wants to reveal himself? What if there's a God who has revealed himself perfectly in the man who came amongst us and said, I am the truth. I am the truth. If, if he is the truth, it, he gives us the way out of our confusion and our darkness. And we're able to trust him, to lean on him. If you follow my teachings, he said, you will be my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so there's a, there's a commitment to the concept in, that there is truth to be found in him. There's doctrine to be found, and it's freeing. It liberates, truly. To avoid any such thing as doctrine and teaching ultimately doesn't liberate. Now, you might be thinking, this sounds a little technical and intellectual. Why are you saying this? Well, partly because you guys, in reality, are rubbing shoulders with this way of thinking all the time, in your workplace, in the media. In, in social media, you might not always recognize it, but I tell you, that's what's going on. A world that makes these assumptions and gets offended when you don't join them in their assumptions. We need to, as Christians, switch on and be real about the culture and the way that it's going. But also realize it comes into the church. It creeps into the church very subtly to the point where even Christians can feel a little bit awkward saying to each other, well, the Bible does say this. Can we not just come back to the Bible? Even within the church, even Christians can feel like, oh, are we allowed to say that? The Bible, we, is that all right? Can I say what the Bible says? Well, yeah, this is the church. So we're built on this. And so we, we need to perhaps recover our nerve, find our courage. Say, no, wait a minute. Jesus said, I am the truth. Come back to the truth of what he's taught. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine because they've been set free from walking blindly, set free from confusion. They found truth. Doctrine. Friends, if we reach the people that we're praying for, and as Matt was talking about last night, we want to reach the culture of our city, we will reach people who in their hundreds and thousands have been lied to by a prevailing worldview that says there is no such thing as truth. Do you think it will be the, 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 the matter of flicking a switch to help them to think differently? It's going to take people months, years to establish the whole idea that this thing is trustworthy. Of course it will. You're going so against the tide when you teach the average Amsterdammer that this book is trustworthy. And even, I'm not talking about the people who are secular and, and, and skeptical, atheists. I'm talking about Christians, people who've become Christians. 
to help them to see that this thing can be trusted, it will take time. It will take patience. Frankly, it will take a certain kind of stubbornness in you as a church to say, no, we stand on the Bible. We do stand on it. We just do. <laughs> people, people will get angry and try to find ways around it. But for you as believers to say, no, we do trust this book. This is God's gift to us. I don't mean you arrogant. I don't mean you yell at them. I don't mean you get angry and bitter and brutal and bullish. I just think you, you just need to patiently hold it and say, I oh, know I believe this book. I'm going to believe what it says here. And people gradually will come to see it. They might, take, they might make mistakes. They might, it might be proven by the wrong decisions they make. And they'll come back to saying, no, you're right. The Bible is God's word. But part of the way you disciple your city will be by your devotion to it. This book, Devotion to the Truth, Devotion to the Apostles' Doctrine, will help you in the way you serve others and gradually help them to get to the same place of conviction. Patient conviction. But let's talk about another reason why we struggle with the concept of being devoted to the Apostles' teaching. And that's that I think I don't know if there's a better way of putting this, but very simply, it can seem spiritually unattractive. It can just seem unattractive. First of all, it can seem unlike freedom. Second of all, it can seem unattractive on the basis that I think that we have a, 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 a weird kind of... Um, I don't know what to call it. It's like a virus in the, in the hard drive in the church today where we sort of split knowing God experientially away from knowing about him as though these two things are not just distinct but they are polar opposites we, we've kind of I don't know where we've got it from but we, it's, it's, it's really gone this way especially in recent times where you have Christians on the one side who, who really look for powerful encounters and experiences of God, and others perhaps on this side who really just simply want to grow in their intellectual knowledge, their cerebral grasp of what the Bible teaches, and they, they kind of see each other as the enemy, or they, they see that this, this, is the only, this is the only legit way of knowing God. My side or their side. I tell you, that division is new and unbiblical. It, it doesn't fit. It doesn't, it, you, you can't see it in the Bible. What you see in the Bible is, is, a, is a genuine passion, experiential knowledge of God that is, that is full of energetic desire to understand him. And understand his truth, understand the story he teaches, to understand his word, to, to, to press into it. And not to fear that when I do that, I'm somehow drifting away from warmth, drifting away from life and enjoyment. Not at all. Not at all. The, the, the two things belong together and are most healthy when they're held together. We seem to divorce knowing something, knowing about it as if they can't go. But if you think about it, that doesn't make any sense. If, if when I was getting to know my wife um, and building my relationship with her in the early stages, I'd said to her, listen, I don't really want to know anything about you, but I do really want to experience you. 
you think she might have been a bit unsure whether to marry me? <laughs> but I think that is a lot of our Christianity in the, in the contemporary age. We, we want to experience God, but we're not all that interested in devotion to doctrine. That, that's got to go. We're not having that. Not in this church. And we, we, we are not going to do that. We're going to devote ourselves to the teaching, partly because it's the way in which we do experience him. Now, you can have experience, if you want to call it that, just by craving experience. You kind of can. I've, I've been in some worship meetings, if you want to call it that, where... It's been highly emotive and intense, but not one song has been sung about Jesus. There's no songs about anything true. It's just songs. It's songs about having an experience. <laughs> I've been in church meetings where it's just sing song after song about having an experience. And what do you know? People have them. Because <laughs> if you're with a few hundred other people and you're singing loud songs about having an experience, probably someone will. Not sure whether it'll be right, but they'll have one. What kind of what it will be? If you want to experience Jesus, actually sing songs about him. Sing truth about him. Because you're you're built, you're wired to relate to truth with emotion. That's how God made you. You're 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 made to to enjoy truth especially the, the, the truth of the gospel, because the truth of the gospel is electrifying. Truth of the gospel is passion building. Truth of the gospel is emotional, frankly. The truth of the gospel is a staggering story. Dorothy L. Sayers was a, an English writer in the first half of the 20th century, and she, she said, it's become typical of late for people to blame the lack of success in the church on preachers and their insistence on preaching doctrine. And she said, the truth is the exact opposite. <laughs> the exact opposite. She said, it's actually the case that the lack of doctrine is what causes churches to struggle. It's where there's a, it causes a lack of true, lasting, substantial inspiration. She said, I quote her words as close as I can remember them, that the, the, the Christian message is the most staggering drama to, no, the most uh, extraordinary drama to ever stagger the imagination of man. And the doctrine is the drama, she said. The doctrine is the drama. We're wired to appreciate story, great story. That's why, you know, the, Matt showed the photo from The Fellowship of the Ring, the first Tolkien film that Peter Jackson made. And it just, it's just one of the most successful films of all time. And, and that whole trilogy, even the Hobbit films, which were stupid, <laughs> were, were, were uh, you know, rode on the coattails of the Lord of the Rings films, which are very good. But they... they they, they got under people's skin so much because it is a genuinely glorious story. Now, there are some Tolkien skeptics in the room, I know, and I, I, God will forgive them, but, but they're... they're 
But the, uh, the point is that whether you like that story or not, whether it's another, like, like a science fiction or something, the, there's a reason that people are appealed to by the grand epic. It just, they just are. Sometimes against their better judgment, they're embarrassed about it. I remember once one of my, when I lived in, in Bedford a few years, a few, many years ago, uh, my neighbour who I was trying to share the gospel with, I, I, he was embarrassed when I discovered that he'd been, uh, I saw him some notepads on his desk in his house and he had like these weird letters written on it against English words. I thought, what, what are you, is he re- learning Hebrew or Greek or something? That's, no, that's not a Hebrew alphabet, what is that? And it was Elvish. <laughs> it was learning Elvish. So like, what? <laughs> that's just weird. I thought I was weird. But yeah, this guy is just kind of just passionate. He's got caught up with this story. And we are wired that way. God's made us that way. The point is that, that God's given us this story. God's given us a, 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 just a, the, 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 the epic. And it, it's, it's no... It's no risk against your emotional life to pursue this, to get, to get into it, to think, well, am I going to get cold and stale if I get into the Bible? No! <laughs> you, you don't, 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 worry, don't this, let this be a reason you don't devote yourself to doctrine. God will draw you, God will stir you, God will fill your, your, your heart with joy as you understand who he is and what he's done through his great glorious story, the true story, the true epic. We, we actually live in a culture that's too easily satisfied by quite shallow, frivolous, emotional manipulation. If you've seen the movie Dumb and Dumber, there's this funny scene where the, uh, they're sitting on this, they've, they've kind of spent all this money, this money they, they, they're trying to career for somebody else and they've given, put it, replaced it with these IOUs. And they're, they're uh, sitting in this hotel bed, kind of just watching TV. And, uh, and they're both sitting on this bed, kind of crying and blowing their nose into banknotes just because they're in tears because of what they're seeing on TV. You think, what are they watching? Some great movie. And as they're watching it, it comes up with this kind of, you realise it's like a bank commercial. <laughs> it's like, it just kind of brings up a, you know, the, the logo from some commercial, some kind of corporate thing. And uh, you think, that's, that's kind of, yeah, I get that, like a 20-second commercial reduces them to tears. That's kind of our culture a little bit. You know, we're quite quickly moved by very shallow things. And that, that, there's a problem there. There's an instant gratification. And that's what I just want to, I made, that leads me on actually to the third problem we've got. The problem of time, being devoted to the apostles' teaching, it is a matter of time, the investment of time. And that's not necessarily a pleasing thing to hear, is it, for us 21st century people who are so conditioned towards instant gratification, kind of been trained by technology, by consumerism, by the instant availability of goods. If it's not instant, it's not good. Let me just draw your attention to Acts chapter 20, a few pages later, where Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus, or the, the elders of the church. And he says to them in verse 26, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. 
the whole counsel of God. That's a helpful phrase, I think. Paul, Paul had a certain idea in his mind about the, the, the deposit of teaching that it was appropriate for him to aim to deliver. That he felt, I'm not just going to come and preach. Like, I'm here today for a day. I'm preaching today, this morning, this afternoon. I can't bring you the whole counsel of God. Not in a day. Paul was in Ephesus for two to three years. Three years altogether with a, with a two-year intensive time where he was teaching in the hall of Tyrannus, in a public lecture hall, teaching daily. He was teaching in the hall of teaching on the Sabbath. So six days a week for hours, he was teaching in the hall of Tyrannus for two years. And then at the end of this time, he says to his elders, I didn't hold back from you the whole counsel of God. And that's, that's very interesting to me because there is a, a certain expl- uh, uh, message of God that you can know instantly. You can learn the gospel in a moment. You don't actually have to devote yourself to the apostles' teaching to be saved. That's why a child can become a Christian in minutes. <laughs> that's what can happen. Someone can, in seconds... We've got stories in the Bible of exactly that happening. So we know he's not talking about how to become a Christian. And neither is he talking about the other end of the spectrum, the kind of mysteries of truth that we we will even in heaven not completely get. So there are things about God that we will spend forever and ever and ever learning and never completely getting to the end of. He's talking about something in the middle. He's talking about a certain level of understanding that when he's done it, he could say, right, I'm done. I can move now. I can go to another city. Start a church there instead. So he he clearly felt there was a certain level of understanding, knowledge of God, knowledge of of the teaching of the gospel, that he expected any healthy church to be fairly established in. And it took two or three years in each case, it seems to me. I think that's very helpful. It, it, it gives me a, some, some idea of, of what, what I should be aiming for in my own life and also even in the lives of people that I'm teaching and in the places we're starting churches, that we should be thinking, yeah, there's a, there's a certain level of commitment to learning truth and, and, and even bodies of teaching that we should be looking to bring about in our churches. It also, though, let's make this more personal because that's a big, broad goal that we need, people like Matt and I and others need to keep working on. You personally, do you understand that to grasp and enjoy, as I've been saying in my second point, the, the Apostles' Doctrine, to devote yourself to the point where it lifts your soul, it will take time. It will take the investment of time. It will take disciplines. Some, some of them would be daily disciplines, regular at least, disciplines that you say, right, this is time that I'm utterly committed to keeping, grasping this. Because in reality, it won't be instantly gratifying. See, the danger about a sermon that I'm teaching, especially my last point, is that you will go away from here 
some of you, inspired to expect enjoyment of the doctrine and enjoyment of the Bible, because he said so at the weekend. He said it would be good. And, and so we, we, I expect my heart to be thundering with heat when I, when, I, when I open the Bible. I expect there to be passion, flames, a desire for God. And, and you can therefore go into an, a sort of unreality where you're kind of opening your Bible in your bedroom every morning expecting magic, expecting to be in, you know, like an owl on the windowsill. It's like Harry Potter. It's just this, this kind of magical time and what's going to happen? And, and frankly, it's, it's just as likely that after even a few days of, of, of just delving into the Bible... You'll get to your Exodus and the descriptions of the tabernacle and, and then Leviticus and the descriptions of the, the priest garments and how much fat to put on the altar and the oil and the, all those the weird laws about who, who gets killed for what, you know, stuff. That you think, what is this? Some of it is confusing and some of it is horrible. And some of it, you get to places like First Chronicles where it's just names. <laughs> So many names of people, just names. And it's like if you do, you know, daily Bible reading and you kind of try to get through your Bible in a year, which is a good thing to do, you will have several days in February and in May where you will wanna wanna kill someone. It will be that bad. Oh man, do I have to do these names and these descriptions of fat and all this stuff? And and so you'll think it wasn't true what the preacher said. Because I expected instant gratification and I didn't get it so it's not good if it's not instant it's not good listen I just wonder if that lie is unique to our generation in all the generations in history (laughs) I wonder if there's ever been a culture before today where that could be said if it's not instant it's not good I reckon that's quite a new idea yeah, we, the Bible talks about the scriptures being like honey. Honey is good to taste. It's nourishing. It's sweet. And so I, I know how to get honey. If that's what the, if it means, it's like honey. I know how to get honey. I just honestly, I just go to Tesco. I just go to the shop. I, just, I get honey like that. I got honey in my house. Plenty of honey. I just go and find it. I just walk into another room. I'm quite like that room, but it's there. When the Bible was written, honey weren't quite like that. It took time, <laughs> a lot of time. You might get hurt while you're trying to get it from the bees. It might get stung, it might be a little painful, but it's worth it. So see the difference that we're, we're wired so we shape. We're pretty soon you can get honey. You don't have to go to the kitchen. You could just get a drone from Amazon to put in your mouth. <laughs> That's where we're going. You see how we're shaped by our technologies. And, and we just got to think back into what does it mean when it says it's, t- it's like honey to me. There are, there are pleasures to be found, but they're worth our time. They're worth our patience. That's why Proverbs 25, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing. It's the glory of kings to seek it out. Do you get that? The glory of God to conceal. Why does God make the Bible so difficult? And he does. He does. Let's be real. This is a difficult book. Okay? You must hear me. I don't want to lie to you. It's difficult. It will upset you sometimes. You'll think, why why does it say that? I don't like that bit. 
Not, I can't even understand how that bit could be true. And that bit doesn't fit with that bit. That says this. this. How do you put this? To, how does it all? How does it work? Good. Good. Ask those questions. Keep asking. Be diligent. Dig. Get stung. Get look. Try. Get gather the honey. Take the time. It will take you a while. But the more you press in, the wiser you'll become. The more you'll, in the end, bring glory to God. The more the more you'll honour Him. By all means, wrestle with this and give it the, the honour of wrestling with it. Devote yourself to it. I remember uh, uh, having a conversation with a friend of mine who was a PhD in some branch of physics or maths or something. something just it, I can't remember what it was. <laughs> you can tell how good I am at science when you hear that. I mean, just, he was a, a, an area of knowledge I don't really know. And he, he, was, he was a PhD in it. And I remember him saying to me, why is it that you recommend sometimes to people books that are so demanding? Books about the Bible that are so demanding. Why do you do that? And what he meant, I could tell what he meant, what was underneath the question was, when I try to read them, I don't instantly enjoy them. They stretch my brain. And so they, so listen, I think what he was saying, so they can't be spiritual. They can't, there's something wrong with them. And I, I, I tell you, that was a PhD, said that. <laughs> I can imagine him saying, well, I don't want to sort of study Jesus, I just want to love him. I'm thinking, you seem to love maths a lot more. You, you, you understand, C.S. Lewis said, intellectual mental laziness is no more virtuous than any other kind of laziness. But we somehow give it a pass if we're not careful. So devotion to the apostles' teaching is a timely thing. Let's just look, before we close, though, as something that binds all these things together, because I think there's something beneath all of these problems that we've got. There's a problem underneath them. What is it that we're saying? When we say, your, your, your word is not pleasing enough to me. It's, it, I know you say it's good, but it's not good enough for my time. I haven't got time for your word. Really what we're saying is, is I'm too important in the end. In the end, it's pride. It's distrustful pride. It's saying, I just don't believe you and I, and I because I, I, I'm not confident in you. I'm confident in me. It's pride, it's unbelief. It's really, it's rooted in our father Adam. It's rooted in what we took from the fall. That's where it comes from. This is why Jesus was so clear and so frequent in saying, the kingdom of heaven belongs to children. Children will get in quicker than you. You remember he said those sorts of things? He even asked a child to come forward once and said, look, look at this one. This, this is the sort of thing I mean. I want you to, he made it visual. Do you understand, disciples? You need to become like children. What, are, what does that mean? It means, I guess, various things. I think one of them surely is, is humble trust. We, we, we trust that our parents know what's good for us when we're little kids. My kids are not little anymore. Some of them. 
It's interesting watching the way they treat my wisdom as they get older. When you're, when you're tiny, you don't doubt what you're being fed. That's what Peter puts it just like this. You've turned to 1 Peter chapter 2. Just at the very beginning, he makes this very point. He says this, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So a, a kid will be at the mother's breast and not question it, obviously. It's just generally speaking, that's how it works with babies. They're not saying, well, I, I, I'm very disappointed with this. <laughs> this isn't good enough. It's just, it's just absolute implicit trust. This is, this is nourishment. This is, it doesn't even think about it. There's, no, there's nothing going on in that sense. It's just receiving, receiving, receiving. And Jesus talking about children, and then Peter making the same point, really, in essence. Like little children, like, like, like I want you to long for the purest pollution and there's a trust in it, there's a confidence in God's wisdom. If God says this is good, it's good. It just is. I don't always know why. I don't always know why. Okay, do you get my point here? You've got to be faithful and patient and humble in devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching, to the word of God. Sometimes a preacher, sometimes Matt or one of the others who speaks will say things you think, oh, is that right? Now test it, make sure it is right. The men aren't infallible, the Bible is, but we, we might get it wrong to so test, make sure we are teaching it right. But friends, if it is right, be like little infants. Okay, I, I will take this in, I trust in your word, Lord. And I get fed, I get fed, I get fed. It's part of our devotion to Christ. You might think, well, does that mean that we end up being enslaved? Well, like I say, men are, in, are not infallible. People who preach, people who teach, the people that have brought you to Christ, they would have said the wrong thing here and there. Their, their witness wasn't perfect in little ways, probably. When uh, Paul preaches in Berea in Acts chapter 17, maybe you know the story, it says they were more noble than any other people who heard them in that area because they tested what Paul said against the scriptures. So they listened to what Paul said and they tested it. They said, okay, let's just, okay, interesting, very interesting, Paul. Let's just check, let's just check everything, checking everything he said. And you'd think maybe <laughs> Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, would be a little irritated by those people. <laughs> Instinctively, perhaps we would. Who do you think you are? This is Paul! When was the last time you got thrown off your donkey and got stoned and shipwrecked? This is Paul. He's allowed to say whatever he wants. And frankly, that, that goes around churches, a lot of that. You know, it's the, the man of power. He's allowed to say whatever he likes. It's not true. It's dangerous. The Bible says, no, they were noble. Good for them. They checked it out. So we don't, we, we don't, we don't want to change, twist this into an authoritarianism in the church. But we, we humble with scripture. And that means... Really, in the end, it's not difficult to submit to people who trust the Bible, who live under the Bible, because you see it in their life. If, if a leader has been mastered by the word of God, they are easier to follow. 
If somebody says, I have mastered the word of God, leave the church instantly. <laughs> That's not the same thing. Okay, someone says, no, I've been mastered by it. I've had to change my life for it. It's just, it's ruined my life, the word of God. It's turned my life upside down. And then that's someone who, yeah, maybe they're, they're someone I could listen to, someone I could follow. It's, it's being mastered by it. It's, it's everybody through history that's done good for Jesus. Their, their, their life doesn't show arrogant kind of intellectual uh, pride. Even if they're brilliant, what they're really marked by is deep humility. They've been shaped by the word of God, mastered by it. They tremble at the word of God, as Isaiah 66 puts it. So I would just give you a few very final suggestions, okay, just to make this practical, because uh, we could agree with everything I've said so far and still not get blessed. So Matt said yesterday, Joel's going to bless you. And um, I can't bless you unless you do what I say. Jesus said, if you hear these things, blessed are you if you do them. You won't get blessed unless you do these things. So think now about your devotion to the apostles' teaching. Are you devoted to the teaching of God's word? Think about that practically. If you are, it will probably be shown in some of your habits that you have. It'll probably show in some of the habits you've got. Are you habitually looking at this book, habitually, in the Bible? Is there a regular routine? Is there a, a, I mean, you're regularly brushing your teeth, I expect. You're regularly putting on clothes. That takes time. There are certain things that are just routine because they have to be. Does the Bible fit into that level? Teeth, clothes? I would suggest it should. It should be pretty close. You might want to mix it together. So I, I, when I brush my teeth, I've got my Kindle. So I can read, just catch out a couple of chapters of the Old Testament every time I brush my teeth. What about, what about you? Are there some things you can do, scripture? Maybe, maybe you could download some audible stuff. That's one of the blessings of our generation. So technology is good and bad. You could get the Bible on audible and you could listen to it quicker than you think. whole book you could listen to quicker than you think. You've done that yet? Don't just agree with me. Think about what are you going to do this next few weeks that you've never done before? Or, or we've wasted our time, really. So can you think of some specifics? If you, if you say, well, I'm not really a reader. I'm not really a reader. I, I think you probably are more than you think you are. But even so, okay, listen a lot. Listen to the Bible as often as you can. Get it on Audible and listen. And listen to good teaching. Don't just listen passively when you're hearing preaching on a Sunday. You, you mustn't be listeners in an entertainment mentality. You've got, you, can, you can watch so much TV that you, kind of, you just zone out and wait for the entertainment moment. Wait for the joke. Wait for the illustration. A bit more, bring yourself to it a bit. Active. You're not going to write some of it down sometimes. Listen whenever you can. Are there some podcasts? We, there are some brilliant podcasts. There are also some bad ones. So be discerning. Ask the leaders. Ask Matt. Ask others in the church. Who do you listen to that does you good? I could give you a list of four or five that I listen to quite often. And they, they do me good. There are some superb teachers that God's give, God 
graciously gives to the church to bless us. And they're online. This is an amazing time for us. So do you use that? Do you make use of God's word? Think about how much you understand the, the, the bits of the Bible that you struggle with. How do you deal with that when that happens? Do you study it some more? Are there any study tools that you've got hold of? Are there any websites that you would, you would go to? If you're thinking, no, I don't, know. I don't know anything about that. I don't know websites. I don't know any books. That's fine. Good Just be humble and ask. Be humble about it. Get some advice. We'd love to help you with that. I know that that would be a motivation in, in, the, in Matt's heart as well. Let's just pray before we finish this session. Just, just while we, our heads are bowed or, or eyes closed, whatever, just, just as we're focusing and drawing, drawing it to God, I think... I was just thinking about this this morning and uh, I was reminded of how uh, they say that crabs, when they're trying to get out of a... If you, if you trap a load of crabs, throw them in a bucket and you know, go, like my kids go catching crabs on the seashore sometimes and you might catch a few. If they are able to climb to the top to escape from the bucket, they will get pulled down by the others. They get pulled down again. So it's, if you, the more crabs are in the bucket, the less there's going to be any escape. The more you have, the, the more you keep. Because one on its own will, will just not... It, 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 you know, if it tries to escape, it grab, grab back down. And I, 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 think, I think really we're like that often in church life. We get brought down to the average, brought down to what's normal. We look around and say, well, he clearly doesn't read his Bible that often, so it can't be that important. Well, she doesn't. That doesn't really matter. Can I suggest to you to stop looking sideways? Devote yourself to the apostles' teaching. What does it look like for you? Follow examples that inspire you, not ones that pull you back down to the bottom of the bucket. Find examples that inspire you. Think, how could I press through to learn more of God and his ways? Father, we want to... Thank you for your teaching and we pray you'd help us to devote ourselves and to make good plans. In Jesus' name, amen.